For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Curvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. So let's get right to it. What is on your agenda this week, Curvin? Well, we'll do Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, Hamas, as always. Uh, but this week we're going to focus heavy on the U.S. and what the U.S. is doing in the Indo-Pacific and the Middle East. Uh, the, there's a new task force in the Red Sea to combat the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, the U.S. has reclaimed an old Pacific World War II era airfield that they are going to set into an Air Force base. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about, uh, if you remember the Xi Biden summit, we did a lot of talk about that. Well, it's recently come out that during that summit, Xi told Biden that uh, the Taiwan reunification is inevitable and not to get in the way of China. <laughs> wow. Okay. Bold move, Cotton. We'll see um, if it works out for him. So anyways, what is the latest coming out of Ukraine? It's uh, you know, another week of the main events that are happening between Russia and Ukraine actually revolve around diplomacy and not really the fighting on the ground. That doesn't mean that there's not fighting still ongoing, but skirmishes are few and far between at this point. Uh, first, I want to get into recent reports that the U.S. has told Ukraine um, there is a plan to turn the war around if Ukraine can hold on until 2025. If you remember, yep. So if you remember last week, we spoke about that hold and build approach that the Biden administration requested. And that's what that's referring to? Yeah. So the hold and build strategy is something that the U.S. has put forward to allow Ukraine to step up its domestic arms production capabilities next year, uh, all through 2024. And then that way they could produce more long-range drones and missiles. So with enough weapons, uh, some within the United States think that Ukraine's army could bring Russia to the negotiating table uh, towards the end of 2024 or into 2025. But wait, wasn't there a report that Putin said he is already ready to negotiate a peace deal with Ukraine? Yeah, that I mean, you saw that, right? That's a good observation. Uh, the fact of the matter is... With the lack of funding from the U.S. right now towards Ukraine, Putin feels like he has the upper hand. So, oh. Well, I mean, I can see how he would feel that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk about going to the negotiating table during a war. One side has to feel that they have won, but also the other side has to realize that there's no hope for success. And then um, that's that's why whenever you see a, a peace agreement, it's usually hugely biased towards the winner of the war. Uh, because the other side feels they have to agree to it to just stop. So I don't think the comments by Putin are genuine. Um, I, I do think he'd love nothing more than to pressure Ukraine to capitulate and then end the war before the Russian elections. 
Uh, but some analysts believe that Putin is just waiting until the 2024 U.S. elections before actually offering a real plan for a peace negotiation. Well, you know, with U.S. funding for Ukraine running out, there is about $4.4 billion left in support from Defense Department inventories. Is that changing any aspect of the fight on the ground in Ukraine? Because, I mean, $4.4 billion, that's not a small chunk of change. (laughs) Not really, because we're still at a stalemate. Uh, It seems very likely that 2024 is going to be the year of the stalemate in this war. That's going to be the term that we'll keep using. It's not going to be any major offensives, and that's because Putin is up for re-election. So he's highly unlikely to take a significant hit to his ego and have something go wrong in this war before Russians head to the ballot box. So I don't anticipate any major combat operations for Russia. And as we just mentioned, the U.S. is asking Ukraine to hold and build until 2025. So you're not going to see much talk about Russia, Ukraine. You're not going to hear that talk in the media. Uh, you're just probably going to hear it on here and a few other places. And that's especially true in the first few months of the new year. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Russian elections because I saw that Putin will run as an independent and not affiliated with the United Russia Party. What is the deal there? Well, first, yeah, Putin's going to run um, as a, he's not going to run as a candidate for the ruling United Russia Party, um, even though he has its complete support. He's going to run as an independent. Why? Um, well, there's there's no direct reason that I can see, but there are some there are some things that uh, that hit me that kind of make me think why he might do that. And there's two different theories that I have um, for this. But first, it's very interesting because unlike in the U.S. or you know other countries, in Russia, if you're going to run as an independent candidate, you have to get support from at least 500 sponsors. So these are you know big-name sports figures or celebrities or news personnel. And that happened this week. That was when an initiative group made up of over 700 politicians and celebrities, figures from the sporting and cultural worlds all endorsed Putin's nomination as the independent candidate. <laughs> what a shocker. Oh my yeah. Gosh. Now, now getting to your question of why, why would he do this? So I think without being affiliated with the, the United Russia party, Putin can kind of try to hide some of the cracks, if any, in his support. So all of this could mean that the internal polling is showing a wane in support for the president. So if the election day numbers come up a bit short, you know, if it's like high 50s to low 60 percent range of support, he can say, well, that was due because I didn't have a party affiliation. I was an independent and we still got strong support from a lot of people without the backing of the United Russia Party. Now, what's also fascinating about this, uh, because Putin obviously understands the U.S. election process. He's meddled in U.S. elections for over a decade. Um, it, in the U.S., there's a ton of talk about independent candidates this year in the U.S. presidential election. And recent polling has, so the the one independent candidate is Robert Kennedy Jr., part of the, the Kennedy family. And recent polling has him polling very high. He still has basically no chance to, to actually win the election at of this course. point. Right. But he's polling very high for an independent candidate. So Putin's decision to run as an independent could be a very public counter to the U.S. political system. He could be trying to garner support among like the the less solid U.S. allies like 
Mexico and Saudi Arabia? Well, we will definitely see how it all plays out really soon as those elections are happening in March, right? Yep. Well, turning our focus on to the other big conflict in the world, um, the war in Gaza rages on and the humanitarian crisis is worsening. What are the big updates on the ground? And will we see another ceasefire soon? And just to let you know, I didn't tell you, (laughs) I donated some money for food in gaza for the humanitarian all right i did that today put your money where your mouth is put your money where your mouth is and if anybody wants to know who i donated to i promise you it wasn't red cross or one of of those the money goes directly to civilians in the humanitarian crisis in gaza so don't not trying to feed any terrorists or anything yeah, which and it's the best way to do it, right? Because if you do the research and you find, uh, you know, an independent, non-affiliated, um, non-government, yeah, exactly, kind of organization, that's a much yeah. better to to do. Yeah, but the fact remains that the conflict has been raging for over two months now. Uh, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, as you said, is worsening by the right. day. But as for fighting on the ground, Israel continues its offensive to destroy Hamas. They say they found the largest and most expansive tunnels within Gaza. This was below a hospital in mm-hmm. in in the region. I did see that. Yeah, so they showed videos that they said were acquired from Hamas computers. Showed tunnels large enough to easily allow movements from large vehicles to move oh, around wow. there. I would like to note that they no civilians were found in any of these tunnels, and I I do think that having access for civilians to be in the tunnels would really protect them right now. Right. Uh, Except, you know, if they were down there and you're flooding the tunnels, that's an even worse humanitarian. Oh, Israel would never hear the end of it. Yeah. Uh, And so. um, Rightfully so. If they did that with. Yeah. Right. With the knowledge, with full knowledge. Yeah. With the full knowledge. Well, even, I don't know. Now that I was, there has been some stuff that's been coming out that you know we had the three hostages that um that were killed by the IDF right by soldiers within the IDF uh, mm-hmm. Israel did an investigation and they denounced that action the actions, and they got, yeah and they got rid of those people and I think that's the right thing to do right um mistakes happen uh, I know in the US we have done a bad job of that during the global war on terror um, we had a couple of the itchy trigger fingers. Yeah, and and there were Just anxious and hopped up and kind of nervous and so kind of like a skittish cat kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You hear one little sound, it freaks you out, and you overreact. And and so I do want to bring to light something that happens uh, because what happened it was not a hostage rescue situation. So uh, within a hostage rescue situation. Uh, hostages are informed to not go anywhere. Don't just lay on the ground until everything's done and you will be moved away from the location. Now, when we, when the U.S. does a, let's say, a hostage exchange or a prisoner is being released, there are multiple avenues to um, to prove that that's the person that they say they are and that's the person that you're getting. And the reason that's done is... You do the negotiation, especially with a terrorist organization. You have no idea if they're going to present you with someone who's not who they say they are, and they're strapped with, you know, 
could be weapons, could be an explosive. Yeah. It's very dangerous for the for for special forces trying to get that person. Um so that's why this was not a hostage rescue situation. These were soldiers. They weren't trying... expecting any hostages, right? Didn't they say that these hostages possibly like escaped or They did escape and oh. and they started to run towards troops. They, they got we've... excited. They were like, "Yay, we're yes. safe." And then They were uh-oh. speaking in Hebrew. They yeah. were raising a white flag. The they had their shirts off. Shirts off. Um, now, this is all from the investigation. So yeah. we don't even, we just don't know unless you were actually on the ground when it happened, what actually happened. But we do know that the, the soldiers that killed those innocent hostages obviously were removed from duty. Yep. And they okay. were told by their commander as it was happening to cease fire. Yeah, and they not didn't. fire. Mm-hmm. And then they fired and killed the third person. Right. Um, so it's a tragedy. And yes. I, I do want to highlight that the investigation was done and they removed them. And that's what should happen. Yeah. Now, the U.S. has been pressuring uh, Israel to enhance civilian protection in Gaza. Uh, President Joe Biden emphasized the importance of safeguarding lives in the Palest- Palestinian territory. Well, what about the ceasefire? Is there any discussion ongoing to approve the cease- another ceasefire in Gaza? So the UN Security Council actually wanted to vote on a resolution this week. Uh, they postponed a vote because of internal policy discrepancies within the Biden administration. So a revised UN draft resolution aimed to avoid a potential third U.S. veto. This is where lawyers come into play. They read over every word because the, they want to make it seem like what they're saying is what they're saying and can't be misconstrued, right? Right. Um, so, so, for instance, I'll, I'll give a, an example here. Changes in the text replace the call for a, quote, urgent and sustainable secession of hostilities. They change that to the urgent suspicion suspension of hostilities to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access. Okay. Now, the Biden administration, or particularly the White House, raised objections Expressing discomfort with the term secession. Cessation. Um, Yeah. So that was the main concern there. Instead of saying the suspension, they said the cessation. And they wanted that changed. Um, (laughs) Well, there's also... (laughs) That's a lawyer thing. I honestly don't know. I mean, Uh, that's getting into the weeds of... Yeah. Okay. How words can be used against I mean, you. I get it because I have words being used against me currently right now. You do? With the, with the, and you know how like the lawyers are saying all that stuff about vested? They're, they're hung up on oh, yeah. vested interest. Yeah. Right. And so. They're, they're hung up on that. <laughs> no love loss for, for lawyers who will do that um, just because yeah. they can, I guess. Yeah. Um, whatever. We're yeah, no, we're not a law mm. podcast or a yeah, legal podcast. Uh, yeah, so let let's quit. Talk, let's quit with the law speak and move on. <laughs> yeah, well, there was also concerns about um, UN monitoring of aid flow without explicit acknowledgement of Israel's role. So, meaning, so Israel doesn't trust the UN at all. Okay, Israel says that the UN is actually um, a front for anti-Israel rhetoric and that they support Hamas. And I do want to remind everyone, 
the United Nations has yet to condemn Hamas for the October 7 cross-border attack. And another interesting thing is going back through the UN because when when there's a statement that's made that, well, the UN is anti-Israel or maybe anti-Semitic, you have to have Mm -hmm. proof for that. Yeah. So if we go back to 2022, Israel was, um, so resolutions by the UN were voted against Israel 22 times for humanitarian purposes. That's in 2022. We know what happened in February of 2022, right? Russia invaded Ukraine. Resolutions opposing Russia numbered nine resolutions. So Israel did nothing really in 2022 except for be Israel, and they had 2020. They had 22 resolutions placed against them and voted against them by the UN. Oh wow! So you could see where that tension lies. There like, is clearly some sort of bias. Yes, Iran. Even though, claim, even though they claim to be an unbiased, you know. Yeah, no. What's interesting about it is the UN created Israel. It was a UN resolution that formed Israel for as a Jewish state. Huh? Well, so I this, can't pretend to or claim to know what is going on in all their little minds. Yeah, we we'll, we'll never know, right? Because they'll never mm-hmm. say the quiet part out loud if they are. Just yeah. completely anti-Israel. Yeah, they're not going to say it at all. Yeah. They'll just, get, but actions speak louder than words. That's that's very true. Yeah. I delay the vote, though. I mean, we know that the UN resolution is not binding. Like, they don't mm-hmm. have to follow through with what's voted on. And it means nothing to Israel, since Israel doesn't trust the UN. So why not, once again, get everyone on record with where they stand on this conflict? It's all because of the United States. The United States is exerting pressure, and that's causing the delay in the matter. Because a third veto from the U.S. would have a very negative impact on the public perception of both the United States and the United Nations. Why is the United States acting like they have a positive public perception anywhere right now? (laughs) Well, so 2024... What what reputation are they trying to save? Well, this all deals with the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. So um, if you follow U.S. politics, you know that Joe Biden is having a very hard time with even his uh, left-wing base because his left-wing base is very pro-Palestine. A lot of his base on that side comes uh, from the academic world, from intellectuals who don't feel like Israel should exist and that 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 this conflict should be over and Palestine should have like the Arab world should have all control of Palestine. I'm just anti great grandpas running the country. Well, that's I mean that's true too, and we're gonna yeah. have two of them. It's like two hundred years it out old. Again. I know two two hundred year old men fighting. I'm so excited for this that we get to have a repeat. Weren't we yeah. in New? No, we weren't in New York City then. That was Trump. That was 2016. Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> but uh, but the Biden administration has to balance its support for Israel mm-hmm. uh, with what is perceived the moral and ethical principles of the United States that, yeah. that are aligned with peace and humanitarian aid and ideals and things like that. Well, that sounds nice. If only they would, you know... Follow ap- through? Apply, oh, yeah, follow through and apply <laughs> these supposed peaceful and humanitarian ideals. That would yeah, be cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
Has the U.S. actually put pressure on Israel to reframe its ground offensive so that civilians are removed from harm's way? That would be super cool. So has the U.S. put pressure on Israel? Yeah. Um, did I have. not say the U.S.? No, you you did. I was trying to play it back I in remember. my head. Okay, okay. I was like, oh my gosh, did I misspeak? That's obviously a possibility with me, because yeah. <laughs> usually I have two thoughts, go, two to three thoughts going on in my brain at the same time, and I'll be saying something, but my brain's thinking of something else. Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely both do that <laughs> a ton of times on this podcast. Like, yeah. Um, okay. But they have, yes, the U.S. has. Um, but we have to remember that it's Israel and Hamas that are fighting this war. So those are the two entities that are going to decide how they're going to fight the war. And that's for better or worse. You know, that Israel's fighting it this way and Hamas is fighting it their way. And we can be pro or anti either side of that, but it's not going to change things. Right. Um, I will say that White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan did discuss with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a transition from high-intensity military operations to a more targeted phase to hit active terrorists, not just a huge swath of land, and hope to get some of these terrorists. So uh, Sullivan requested the West Bank and Gaza Strip be placed under a revitalized Palestinian Authority government when this is all said and done. Um, and that's after, because Israel has stated, the goal of this is to annihilate Hamas, that they no longer exist. So there are talks now in who's going to take the place of Hamas when that happens. So we do not have sustained peace in the Middle East on the horizon, obviously. No. There's a lot of things going on right now. And now this week is heavy on the United States talk. And first, I want to get into the issues with the Red Sea, where the Houthis in Yemen changing their focus from attacking Israeli-owned ships to attacking any commercial ships traveling through the Red Sea. And this has obviously led to the formation of a new task force within the region to protect and take those commercial ships, you know, where they need to go, but also take the fight to the Houthis by attacking strategic locations within Yemen. Can you explain what this new task force is and who's involved and whether or not this could lead to a broader conflict in the Middle East? Because that's what we need. That's what yeah. everybody needs. Yeah, I know. Another conflict to worry Every about. Everybody's tired. Um, and what you're talking about is Operation Prosperity Guardian. It's such a... <laughs> that name just cracks it's me up. The... Well, yeah, I won't get into the weeds of how operations are named and objectives and things like that. There's a lot of play. I don't, I don't care about why they're named. I just know they're <laughs> named dumb things. Yeah, um, like New Dawn. Yeah, and that was uh, that was when I was in Iraq, and we changed oh, it to Dawn? Operation New Dawn. That was Operation. it. Was a New Dawn of the same thing over and a over again. A New Dawn of the same. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, but this is a multinational security initiative aimed at safeguarding merchant ships in the Red Sea uh, from those Houthi rebels. The initiative garnered contributions from nations like the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, and the Seychelles. Uh, important to note that Spain is on the fence about joining in. Seen is it because they don't care about their ships? <laughs> 
Well, they they don't have too many ships going through there. But if if you remember, we talked about a little bit about Spain. They're going through a new government. They have oh, a, yeah. Yeah, a yeah, more yeah. left wing government. Okay. Um, so they're probably not wanting to get involved into that because of where they stand with uh, probably where they stand with Iran and mm-hmm. all of their proxies. And, and okay. Spain doesn't think that they did a cost benefit analysis and they probably said it's not good to join in on this. Okay, well. Uh, within this operation, the United States deployed two destroyers, the USS Kearney and the USS Mason. And they did that through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. That's to deter mm. and respond to Houthi threats. So right now, these Houthi attacks are je- they're jeopardizing 10 to 15% of all global trade. So once again, this is why these events affect everybody. The, the fact that these major companies are having to reroute their container ships means everyday people like you and me, like everybody listening, they're going to be paying more for your essential goods. Besides the obvious economic factors, what are other potential implications of this initiative? Well, it it aims to ensure freedom of navigation and enhance regional security, which, yeah, that's critical to the global economy. But the the Red Sea is a critical waterway that has been essential to freedom of navigation and major commercial corridor, which facilitates international trade. So that initiative is an important step towards ensuring regional stability and prosperity. So it, it's actually trying to help countries within the Middle East. That's what this initiative is. So th- it's been set up to take the fight directly to the Houthis. I think uh, what you really want to get at is, uh, does this or could this lead to the, the broader conflict? The question you asked at the beginning. Um, and the answer is that only time is going to tell. So we don't know. If the Houthis get more support from Iran and they feel as though they can kind of win a strategic battle with the United States, then things could escalate. But as it stands right now, it doesn't appear that um, – it, it just doesn't appear that we're headed to a fight within the Red Sea. And that's hopefully going to lead to a return to freedom of movement for commercial ships and drop those prices at the supermarket. What are the commercial ships doing now to get around all the dangers that are in the Red Sea? So according to recent reports, some large shipping firms are allowing its fleet of tankers to veer around the Red Sea. Um, That hopefully keeps the ships safe, but it's going to add hundreds of miles to the journey by sea. So Mm -hmm. that's going to drive up costs, hit your pocketbooks. Um, It would be nice if everybody could just get along because the economy isn't doing well anywhere around the globe. So please, can we just stop all the fighting? Uh, yeah, if only it were that simple, Kervin. Right. <laughs> they would have done it already. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't seem to be what the future holds for us right now because of the next topic. Well, the next topic is one of many reasons why our future doesn't hold world peace. But yeah. the United States has made a major push to reclaim a World War II-era airfield in the Pacific, which was once used by the largest B-29 bomber fleet during the war. Can you explain what this means for the Indo-Pacific and how this possibly affects reunification of Taiwan? Yeah, so the the U.S. military reclaiming that airfield. um, This is part of an initiative to disperse aircraft across the Indo-Pacific region as China's missile threat continues to grow. So the, the revival of this airport aligns with the what's called the Agile Combat Employment Strategy. It wants to emphasize flexibility and distributed force posture. It's all part of that deterrence. So by securing access in the Philippines and Papua New Guinea, 
upgrading air bases in Australia. The U.S. the U.S. has reinforced its commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. This is all part of the U.S. plan for peace by deterrence. They're hoping an increase in military assets in the Indo-Pacific is going to do enough to deter China from reunifying Taiwan by force. Well, that's obviously not working, though. I mean, that is evident by the report this week that Xi told Biden not to get in the way because China is going to reunify Taiwan, whether through peace or by force. And that's a huge report. And I'm sure it's not going to help U.S.-China relations, even though things felt kind of hopeful Mm -hmm. whenever they left that meeting, should have known that it all was not as it seemed. Um, How do you see this event I mean, all G did was say the not-so-quiet part out loud. Yeah. Um, but we all know this is coming. What's not known right now is how it all plays out. So all countries involved are wargaming this, and the fact of the matter is the U.S., as it stands today, they're not going to sit back and allow aggressive actions from China. There's a lot we don't know, though, about the future of Taiwan right now. So it's tough to make a prediction on how it's all going to play out. Uh, there's quite a few elections coming in 2024. We've China's going to be waiting for the U.S. elections, see how that plays out. But the elections in January in Taiwan are going to be a key date for all the world. Well, I know this isn't in the rundown, but I think it is important to start the conversation about the Taiwan elections. So can you break down where the parties stand right now and how different outcomes could possibly change the geopolitical landscape as well as move the reunification timeline. Timeline, Whoa. Right. Uh, yeah. But you're going to have to get ready because there's a lot to talk about. Okay. Um, so there's multiple parties. There's three parties. Uh, the two major parties are the Kuomintang, the, or KMT, mm-hmm. which was the ruling party during the authoritarian era that facilitated Taiwan's transition to democracy in the 1990s. Then you have the Democratic Progressive Party. They're the current ruling party of Taiwan. So the the KMT has been in favor of engaging China, at least economically, while the DPP has stressed the threat that China poses to Taiwan over time. Now, like I said, there's a third party. That's the Taiwan People's Party, or the TPP. And they've thrived on this anti-establishment stance. It's a lot like the Libertarian Party in the United States, very anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, they have garnered a strong support from the young people of Taiwan. So basically, the KMT is pro-China and the DPP is pro-Taiwan maintaining its sovereignty. Uh, that's you know That's how it's characterized in the media. Um, there's a lot of things that the KMT says that does look like pro-China, but it's, it's just super complex, super nuanced. Uh, and I say that because all the candidates basically support a version of the status quo. So that rejects formal independence, saying that we are completely independent from China, but it opposes China's territorial claims. Okay. Um, they also want to maintain both parties, actually all three parties, want to maintain a relationship with the United States. They reject China's proposal of one country and two systems for bringing Taiwan more formally under Chinese control. Uh, Even though they all agree on these points, each candidate has a different approach of how they would actually put these policies into action. Well, that's interesting. How is each candidate taking a different approach? 
Uh, good question. And again, bear with me because I'm going to have a lot to explain. Um, if you get it confused, please stop me. So the DPP candidate has expressed his support for Taiwan's de facto independence. He's reiterated its position that formal declarations of independence are not necessary. Uh, if elected, he's expected to continue this position. But some worry that his old comments reveal desires for increased independence. He has commented in the past that Taiwan should formally uh, vote for their independence. Now, the KMT has historically emphasized the need for dialogue and cooperation with China as the best way to manage cross-strait tensions. Uh, their candidate has signaled more moderate views on those relations compared to other voices in his party. Uh, it's also demonstrated resistance to traditional KMT views. So early in his candidacy, uh, Ho, the, the KMT candidate, failed to take a clear stance on a tacit agreement between the two sides, between Taiwan and China, that acknowledges the existence of one China, but does not define what that means. So he was against that. His reputation for not falling into lockstep with the KMT has made some people within the party worried about how he would govern if elected. So his candidacy as a KMT candidate was very... Um, was was hotly contested. Now, the final one, the TPP candidate, has positioned himself as a more centrist, a pragmatic policymaker. Uh, he's seeking to balance both the U.S. and China to allow Taiwan to pursue its growth and national security. TTP is the newest party in Taiwan, um, so they have less precedent to benchmark the positions they may take. But the emphasis on pragmatism would likely involve more dialogue and formal engagement with China than we've seen with the current administration. So with those three positions, do you have any idea on who is winning in the polls right now? Well, the latest polling suggests that the DPP candidate has a 35.2% chance of winning. Okay. The KMT candidate has a 32.1% chance, and the TPP candidate is 19.7%. Uh, now, all of the polls have had some variation. But this has kind of been what it, the polls have looked when voter sentiment for much of this election cycle this year. Uh, clearly, you know, if the, the KMT and the TPP candidates could have formed a joint ticket, they probably would have won power uh, with overwhelming support. And there was a serious attempt in November to do that. But, you know, as with power, they couldn't agree on which candidate was going to run. So how does all this affect the future of the Indo-Pacific? Oh, the outcome of the election is going to have significant implications. I think that's one of the benchmarks that China is waiting for, um, because that's going to frame Taiwan's domestic policy and its strategic positioning within the Indo-Pacific. So a victory for KMT or TPP might lead to restored cross-strait communications, uh, maybe a superficial easing of tensions, but any Taiwanese president is going to have little control over the geopolitical fault lines uh, because of China's military buildup and because of that deepening rivalry with America. That also plays a factor in all this. All, all this election is going to do, um, let's say the KMT candidate wins, um, it's just going to delay the inevitable. Uh, but that delay could be a good thing because it could better prepare Taiwan to defend itself. Well, before we wrap up the podcast, we have another listener question from the same listener. <laughs> <laughs> Let's we'd get some new to, questions. Yeah, we'd, we'd like to make a new segment where we, you know, 
field questions from our listeners if they're, you know, so we will start and, um, you know, we'll give you it like we'll read your question. We'll answer it and give you a shout out if you want one. So send in your questions. But this week, longtime listener Chad has another question for us. So get to it, buddy. Um, first off. Thank you so much for answering my what if question about China. It did give me new insight into why the week that changed the world was a geopolitical game changer. As you have reported with Ukraine and Russia and with Hamas and Israel, these countries will try to get military and financial assistance from their allies. How can a country give aid to one of the warring countries and not be pulled into the fight or have war declared on them? During the World Wars, countries like the U.S. had to give their aid in more of a hush-hush, under-the-table agreement, I'm sure with both sides, so that they wouldn't be drawn into the war. Well, Chad, as you said, it is possible for a country to provide aid to one of the warring countries without being pulled into the fight or having war declared on them. Uh, what Chad's alluding to is in World War II, the United States provided aid to um, allied powers. They provided aid to Russia and China, all the countries that were fighting against the Axis. This was through the Lend-Lease program. That allowed the U.S. to provide military and economic assistance to the allies without officially entering the war. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the way the U.S. achieves this without getting involved militarily is by taking steps to minimize the risk by carefully considering the type and amount of aid that it provides. They also need to have to communicate their intentions clearly so that both sides that are warring against each other, the, go back to that legal speak, right? You don't want right. to misconstrue the words or, or what they're trying to do. So present day, the United States has provided aid to Ukraine in the form of military, economic, and humanitarian assistance, just like Chad mentioned. Um And the U.S. government has clearly stated that this aid is intended to support Ukraine's sovereignty and their territorial integrity, not to fight the war against Russia. So they're not supposed to use this equipment. Not to to provoke Russia. Correct. They can't go into Russia with it and start wreaking havoc. Right. Uh, At that point, what I think would happen is the U.S. government would say, well, we're sorry we can't provide any more support because you went against our agreement for giving you those weapons. And that's mm-hmm. how they stay out of it. Um, and, and listen, there's always a risk of being drawn into a conflict. We talked about it for over a year as the conflict was going on in Ukraine, that something could be misconstrued or somebody could do something wrong and the U.S. could get involved because of a mistake. That could very well happen. Um, there, there is, though, this sort of risk-reward conversation that's happening. And what I mean there is there's a risk to giving Ukraine any support for the war with Russia. So what's the reward? The reward is gaining the lessons learned for how to fight a near-peer adversary like Russia. So now the U.S. can take those lessons learned without any U.S. service members dying. And when the war with China starts, they can effectively use that information to fight against China. And that's part of their risk-reward. And those conversations are happening within the White House, the Senate, especially the Pentagon right now. Well, thank you, Kervin. Is that all for this week? That's it for me, unless you had anything else you wanted to add. Nope. 
Just wanted to thank all of you beautiful people for listening to our tiny little independent geopolitical podcast, and we hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.